Growing up, many of us are told by frustrated parents to eat our carrots to see better in the dark. While carrots contain vitamin A, which is essential for eye health, they clearly don't give us night vision. But could we see better in the dark? Could we avoid things that go bump in the night, namely shins into furniture? QBI's Visual Ecology Lab might have the answer. And it all seems a bit fishy. So I'm here with Professor Justin Marshall, who studies marine life and visual ecology. And we're standing in the Queensland Brain Institute's workshop in front of some giant steel beams that are being welded together. And Justin, what are we looking at here? Uh, well, Donna, this is it's very exciting for us because we're putting together a new uh, net system for deep sea trawling. So we're doing what people do to go and catch fish to eat, except we're going to catch fish much deeper, uh, maybe down to 3,000 metres and look at them for uh, their sensory systems. And we're fascinated by how animals in the deep sea, where sometimes there's no light, um, how they live. Why do they have eyes? So in terms of these deep sea creatures, they look very weird and wonderful because there's no light down there. So how do they see and sense things? Uh, That's a good question. And, you know, you you pull up a fish from, let's say, 2,000 metres, and we know from... uh, measurements that light from the sun doesn't go down below a thousand meters so these fish apparently are in complete darkness but the answer there is that they use bioluminescence so they're producing their own light and communicating uh, in order to find things to eat and to find um, uh, mates to mate with and to um, avoid being eaten so they use bioluminescence as a distractor so they use it uh, to distract possible predators so they're conducting their lives in complete darkness. Uh, the second part of the answer to the question is that some animals live in that top, um, let's say 200 to 1,000 metres, where light is dwindling. So you're in this sort of what's called the mesopelagic realm. And there there's deep blue light. And again, life there is very different. And we're very interested in how these animals are conducting their life in that um, dim light environment. So what do these sea creatures have to do with neuroscience? In fact, most of what we know about neuroscience was first worked out on animals from the sea. Almost everything that we know about the basics of uh, nervous conduction and how a nerve works and how it conducts information from A to B was first discovered looking at squid. Uh, This was Hodgkin and Huxley in the Plymouth Marine Lab in the United Kingdom. And they used squid because they knew that they had very big uh, neurons and they wanted to work out what the the chemical processes were. Um, Since then, uh, the sea slug, the aplysia, has been used as a great model to work out how synapses work. Um, Crabs have also been used. So, in fact, studying animals from the sea has uh, enormously contributed to, to neuroscience. A lot of what we know about nerves and brains and sensory systems has come from the study of these animals. And we're continuing that tradition and finding out some really fascinating things uh, about their their sensory existence. Your work specifically looks at vision in these animals. Can you talk a little bit about that? My group um, at the Queensland Brain Institute, we're, we're fascinated by how other animals see the world. And, you know, as arrogant humans, we tend to assume that the world is the way that we see it. And that's absolutely not the case. Um, 
There are very good examples of animals that have much better color vision than we do. Now, birds have much better color vision. Some of the fish in the ocean have much better color vision. Some of them don't have color vision at all. And if you're living in the deep sea, where light is either uh, very blue because that's all that's left from the surface, or it's very blue because that's the bioluminescence, the light that's produced by other animals is blue, then there's not much point in having very good color vision. There's no point in seeing red um, because there's no red light there. Um, however, if you're one fish, Malacostius niger, their common name is a trapjawed sort of dragonfish because they have very big teeth. And these fish use red light. So they actually uh, have a bioluminescent organ, a, essentially a headlamp, which is red because they know that the other animals down there don't see red. They're the only deep sea fish that we know that does see red. So essentially these fish have pre-invented um, what we now use as infrared vision. So um, cameras that can see in the infrared, we can go around as um, potentially snipers or some, you know, if we want to see people in the dark and we don't want them to see us, we use infrared. These deep sea fish, the Malacostiids, use red light and they've pre-invented this system of snooping around trying to find things to eat millions of years before we did. In the twilight zone of the deep sea, one of the dimmest habitats in the world, lanternfish ironically use light to hide themselves. What visual adaptations do they use and how does this even relate to us? QBI's Dr Fanny de Busseroul explains. Yeah, so it's very interesting um, area of the ocean for two reasons. So um, they steal a little bit of light from the surface switching their step. So between 200 and 1,000 meters, you can still have light from the sun, the moon, the stars that can reach their step. So obviously we can't, as humans, see that. But the habitants of this um, zone um, have eyes that are very sensitive and can see those level of light. And in addition to that, um, you have bioluminescence, uh, which is a light that is produced and emitted by the animals living in this zone themselves. And you have a lot of that in this area. So even though it's a very dim habitat, there's still some and a lot of light signals going around um, for animals to use and communicate. And yeah, so it's really interesting, a lot of variation in this area compared to the surface and or the very, very deep, which is very even darker, or you will only have the bioluminescence. So bioluminescence is kind of an adaptation that these fish have developed. Can you give some examples of what, what these creatures look like or use the light for? Yeah, so they use the light um, for a lot of different uh, purposes. Um, many of them use it uh, to communicate, either to attract a prey, for example, um, the anglerfish, the scary one in Nemo, uh, with the light dangling in front of him, is actually a lure to attract um, prey. Um, so they use it in this um, uh, fashion. They can also use it uh, to avoid a predator. So they will uh, flash a little bit of light and the predator will see the light, will be attracted by it. And, but by this time, the fish have time or the animal has time to escape. So it's a distraction. Um, communication, specific light signal um, to attract a mate um, or talk with uh, another um, individual and also to camouflage themselves. So a lot of 
fish, um, like the lantern fish, for example, they have a lot of uh, luminous organ on their belly. So the entire surface of the belly is covered with tiny luminous organs that emit light, and they match um, the illumination of um, the background light, and so they can disappear um, for a predator that is looking from below. So they are countershading their um, belly to disappear in, um, in the ocean. Yeah. It's almost ironic that they're actually using light to hide themselves. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about the lanternfish? Um, so the lanternfish are a really cool family of deep sea fish. Um, they are one of the most abundant family of fish in the ocean. There's um, more than 250 species of lanternfish in the world. Um, they are really tiny fishes, um, but very interesting for my kind of studies because they are very, very, very diverse in terms of um, behavior, distribution, the pattern of the luminous organ they have on the body, um, how they use this um, to communicate, um, and yeah, very varied um, family of fish. And they are really, really important in the ecosystem because they are um, performing vertical um, migration. So during the day, they live um, very deep. So um, in average around 500 to 1,000 meters. And then at night, they are going to migrate, swim all the way back to the surface, some really right at the surface of the ocean to eat. So every day you have this migration of fish that is going up and down um, to eat and then camouflage in the dark. Wow, so it's like a defense mechanism to hide down below and then come up for food. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So what do we hope to learn about vision by studying fish like, like the lanternfish family? Um, so fish are quite interesting um, for adaptation studies because they are very plastic. They have adapted to live in so many different environments. Like when you think about it, you have fish living in a coral reef, in a lake, in a river, in the deep sea. And so we can really like, see how um, they adapt it. Um, to this specific environment. And vision is one of the main sense that is used by most animals to perform daily tasks. And even though it's very dark in the deep sea, it's still a very quite visual environment. And lanternfish um, use predominantly vision um, to perform their daily task. So by studying this fish and how their eye um, is adapted to see these very, very dim-like conditions and this very specific signal, we can learn a lot about how the visual system evolved, um, how um, this fish um, survive in this environment, and we can learn a lot also about their behavior because not much is known and we cannot really study them um, in the deep because it's very hard to access and we can't keep them alive in aquarium either. We don't know yet how to do that. So the only way to have a bit of a glimpse of what they can do or what, how they behave is to um, study their sensory system and how they perceive their environment and how they react to it. So in terms of studying these animals, you mentioned that it's quite difficult. Mm -hmm. How do you study them? <laughs> So um, we go on big research vessels, uh, usually for a few weeks at a time, um, and we uh, troll the fish. So we would put a 
big net in the water and we will target usually a, a specific depth. Often we do that at night because most of the fish have migrated towards the surface to eat, so it's less deep. We put the net in the water uh, and then we bring back the net on board after a few hours of fishing. And then it's a bit like Christmas, you don't know what you're getting. So it's a very exciting moment with the scientists on board. We just look at the bucket of fish and then say, okay, what do we have? And do we have a new species? Um, do we have the species we were looking for? And that's what is tricky because you never know what you're going to get. So even though you have in mind um, a fish you really want to study, you never know if you're going to get it. <laughs> in terms of studying vision, what can studying the visual systems in these marine animals tell us about either humans or about vision in general? Um, about humans, probably not so much directly because uh, we have a very well-studied visual system and we know what we see. And often we are a bit, a bit biased by that because we have a tendency of thinking that what we see is what other animals see. So by studying deep sea fish, we try to get a bit out of our own perception and try to picture how those fish, so what is their environment and how they can perceive things. So, for example, most deep-sea fish, they don't have a very uh, acute visual system, so they don't see shapes, very defined shapes like we, we see. Um, and But they have a very, very sensitive eye, so they can detect the tiniest amount of light that will be in their surrounding, rather than us. Um, very quickly, it will be, this is completely dark, I don't see anything. Um, so there's these differences, and then, certain type of adaptation that we find in fish um, later on can be applied to robotics or like to improve um, our own dim line vision um, in the army in like there can be a lot of application depending on what we find also. So it's potentially to help us see better in the dark? Could be yeah definitely. What's your favorite fact or tidbit that you've learned in the course of your research? I think for me, the, my favorite uh, fact is um, the interaction that um, the deep sea fish have um, between one another. Um, with the bioluminescence, I think is very fascinating. And then you have some weird animal facts, like some species will be able to eat um, an animal that is bigger than themselves. The anglerfish. Um, male that is tiny and just going to be a little um, parasite on the female and fuse with the female body <laughs> and just become um, a sack of sperm for the female and a female can have a lot of different males attached to her. That sounds terrible for the male. <laughs> yeah, it's not very nice for the male, that's for sure. But it's yeah, the deep sea is fascinating because it's such an extreme environment. There's, it's very vast, so big, dark, cold, a um, lot of pressure. And then the deeper you go, the less uh, biomass you have, the less animal you can see. And the species, they had to adapt it to like, think, oh, I might not find my next meal um, tomorrow. I might not eat for two weeks because 
I might not see a prey in on that amount of time or I might need to find a mate as soon as I see something. I might just need to keep it for myself because I might not encounter another mate for a very long time. And so they have developed this crazy adaptation to survive in this condition. And I think that's really, really cool. That was Dr. Fanny de Busserol discussing lanternfish and the deep sea. Now back to Professor Justin Marshall to find out more about his research and upcoming trip. We're very lucky um, in that we are working uh, with a German ship, the the Sonner, which operates in the Pacific. And we're um, collaborating with German colleagues from the University of Tübingen. Um, So Professor Jochen Wagner is the the chief scientist on this this, um, expedition. Uh, We're also working with scientists from the University of Western Australia and from England, from, um, from London universities. Um, so it's an international team that's come together um, and we're setting sail, although there's no sails involved, but we're setting out from, um, from WA, going across the Indian Ocean to Sri Lanka, um, sampling animals, having a look at how they live along the way, and also putting down two different sorts of deep sea camera um, to film the animals doing their natural thing in their natural habitat as we go. I saw a cool piece of tech that you had upstairs. It's a camera that attaches to the iPad and by steadily walking around an object, you can capture it in complete 3D with all its complexity. What will you use uh, this camera for? Uh, yeah, it's a new thing. So it's a scanner. It's a, a, in fact, it's a, lots of people have them these days. Uh, it's the sort of thing you can just clip to your iPad, um, scan an object, as you say, all, all the way around. You either walk around it or you put it on a turntable. And we're going to use this to recreate some of the uh, deep sea fish. Uh, you can then plug the data into a 3D scanner and um, make the fish. And the sorts of things we're going to be doing are making fish, making um, cephalopods, octopus, squid, cuttlefish, uh, in order to model uh, what potential mates might see when they see each other. So we'll be using this tech to um, try and recreate deep sea life because it's very difficult to um, actually get down there yourself. I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with submersibles and I've been to the deep sea but you're only there for um, a couple of hours at the most Um, so we have to recreate what's there using this sort of technology. Justin you've been on some really exciting expeditions what would you say is the most interesting or fascinating research you've been involved in? Uh, That's a really difficult question (laughs) I've been very lucky in that I've done lots of things in lots of cool places I get to work on the Great Barrier Reef um, I got to be the tour guide for Sir David Attenborough um, going around the Great Barrier Reef and part of that was to go into the deep waters off the Great Barrier Reef in a submersible with Sir David and that was just amazing. So that was in terms of um, getting the research out there, that was certainly the pinnacle of my career because I was working with the world's best science communicator uh, in the environment which he loves and that I loved and it was amazing. I've also been lucky enough to be on a number of scientific expeditions and use submersibles and go to the bottom of the ocean and look at and capture animals that live there. Um, So my research takes me from deep ocean all the way up to the very shallow reef systems and looking at how animals in these different environments adapt. So if you had to pin a label on me, I'm a visual ecologist. So I work on how visual systems respond to the ecology and to the physics of the environments in which they live. 
You're an avid supporter of reef conservation and you lead a group called Coral Watch. Um, in recent years, there's been a lot of damage on the Great Barrier Reef, which is more than a little bit concerning. And what can people at home listening do to help protect the reef and our waterways? Uh, that's a very important question. And certainly part of what, although this expedition we're going on is about the deep sea, uh, we're working on connectivity issues and how the surface connects to the deep. And part of the surface, as you say, Donna, is the, the reef systems and the Great Barrier Reef. And the new data that's coming out from um, a number of groups, including Coral Watch, but uh, mostly led by Terry Hughes and the um, Centre for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies in Townsville, is that we've lost in the north up to 70% of our reef systems. That's an area the size of Scotland that we've lost in the last two years. So it's devastating uh, for the scientists. It's devastating for Australia and it's devastating for the world. Um, at Coral Watch, what we're trying to do is... Um, unconfused people, if you like. A number of people, many people, are still confused by what they hear in the news, what uh, a set of misguided politicians are trying to, to suggest that we have and that we don't have and that we should and should not do. Um, so what we do is provide the opportunity to go to the reef, to monitor the reef and help gather data if you want to. But increasingly, we're providing educational tools for schools, and opportunities for people to recognize what we need to do and what we need to do most definitely is run at renewable energy as fast as possible. So global climate change is causing these problems in the same way as global climate change is causing the melting of glaciers and the North Pole, which is driving polar bears towards extinction as we speak. Um, the Great Barrier Reef has suffered these two massive bleaching events in a row, 2016, 2017, and before that in 1998 and 2002. And these events are absolutely unequivocally linked to climate change. There's essentially no such thing anymore as a climate change denialist, because you might as well deny that the earth is spherical and think that it's flat. So most countries have moved beyond that and they're pushing as hard as possible towards uh, renewable energy, and that's the thing that we must do in Australia. At this point, many people throw their hands in the air and say, oh, the government must do that, and it's going to cost me too much to do anything. Or little me, I can't do anything. You absolutely can. Anything you can do is going to help. So even switching your lights off at night time, turning your television uh, off, turning your computer off completely at night time, that's going to help. And then changing lifestyle more and more. I mean, you don't have to be a completely invisible hippie living in the woods, having a zero carbon footprint and floating above the forest in a sort of Zen existence. Anything you can do at home is going to help in terms of sustainable living. Possibly one of the most important things we can do is source our energy from renewable sources. In this way, essentially pushing the carbon-based energy sources out of business. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the expedition? I think only that um, it's a great privilege and uh, it's a fantastic opportunity. So I'd, I'd like to thank the German um, vessel, the Sonne, for taking us out because essentially they're paying for most of this. They To run a vessel that size is oh, $100,000 a day um, and they're letting us use this um, partly because of our previous collaborative um, contact with a number of German scientists. 
Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, it's a great international effort to understand the oceans, to, as well as gather scientific data, show everyone what these oceans are like, the fantastic life that lives there. And we hope very much that when people see this, they will be inspired to keep the ocean uh, as it is and protect the ocean, not exploit the oceans as we're currently doing, and essentially um, live as better animals on a shared planet. That's all for this episode of A Grey Matter. If you'd like to find out more about Professor Justin Marshall's work, please visit qbi.uq.edu.au forward slash ecovis, E-C-O-V-I-S. For more information or to find out how you can support Coral Watch, visit coralwatch.org. I'm Donna Liu, and our podcast is produced by Jessica McGall. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on social media, tell your friends, or give us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.